Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Once you finish the season finale of HBO Succession, make sure to tune in to the last episode of the Ringer's after show called Number One Boys with Chris Ryan and Jason Concepcion. You can check that out as well as recaps from the episodes from this season on our Twitter, at Ringer, and our YouTube page. We also have a lot of great written content about the show from writers like Allison Herman, Katie Baker, and Miles Surrey. You can find that on theringer.com. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about art imitating life, life imitating art, and podcasts imitating cable news. Amanda, there is no more annoying form of cultural discussion than blank in the time of Donald Trump. And yet, we find ourselves faced with four new movies this weekend that could comfortably be called politically conscious, perhaps even reactionary pieces of art. And not all of them are what we might have expected. Those movies are Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit, which is marketed as a quote-unquote anti-hate satire, Steven Soderbergh's episodic Panama Papers docudrama The Laundromat, which is now streaming on Netflix, the unlikely Zombieland sequel, Zombieland Double Tap, and Angelina Jolie starring in a sequel to a Sleeping Beauty prequel called Maleficent Mistress of Evil. Now, later in this podcast, I'll have a conversation with Ruben Fleischer, who made the Zombieland film. But before we get to that, Amanda, we have to talk about Movies in a state of political anxiety, I think. Yes, in the world in a state of political anxiety. And that's, we should start this discussion. You and I had a brief conversation before we started podcasting of how much do we want to do this? Because Maleficent definitely is a text about (laughs) like the social organization of America and the world in 2019. And it's also just about sexy fairies. So... (laughs) Take everything with a grain of salt. We are not going to be MSNBC moms, but it is hard to have a conversation about anything in 2019 without talking, uh, without doing a political reading. And sometimes that's a reflection of the person doing the political reading, and sometimes that's a reflection of the text itself. And I think at least three of these movies, I confess I have not yet seen Zombieland Double Tap, are engaging with the state of the world in a textual level. Yes. And I think that the idea to do this episode in this way occurred to us while we were watching, of all things, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. Which we had is, some time to think about other things. That's true. Uh, it's a it's a confounding movie. I would say not necessarily a bad movie, but similar to Double Tap, it's not necessary, but it reveals weirdly in the shape of a Disney film, a, I think a sincere anxiety about us versus them, haves versus have nots, border wars, the future of Angelina's career. <laughs> all of these things are sort of in play, all of these fraught conversations. And we don't, I think we're, we're not interested in having a, a Donald Trump conversation. We're not interested in having a Mitch McConnell conversation here. That's not really what the point of this, but all of these movies in their own way feel not just like film critics craning their necks mm-hmm. very hard to make a point about something. They feel like things that are made to make a comment about the world that we're living in right now. Now, Theoretically, all movies do that. Even the dumbest movies in the world are making it. Even the 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 I don't know the the emoji sequel that came out earlier this year has something to say about I don't know capitalism or something. Right. Tech in the age of despair. But there's something unique about this one. And obviously, we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about Joker and the theoretical anxiety, social upheaval that that movie is attempting to address and reflect. And in the last couple of years, we've seen movies like. Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, which, mm-hmm. you know, seemed to 
make an effort to communicate about what's happening in the middle of this country that coastal elites don't understand. Green Book last year was obviously this bellwether for a why can't we all just get along culture that some certain comfortable, mm-hmm. uh, cozy white guys may be seeing in the world. It's interesting because this stuff always moves in waves and it takes a long time to make a movie. Years Mm -hmm. and a lot of money. And so movies don't come out and they don't comment immediately on the Ukraine story and the impeachment. That's going to take two years before we get those movies. We're probably going to get them. Mm -hmm. We'll probably talk about about them on this podcast. But now I think what we're seeing is a lot of like 2017 anxiety on the big screen. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. And I, it's going to continue. As soon as you put together this outline, I was thinking a lot about um, that timeline and the how long it takes to react to things. There's a movie called Bombshell, which is coming out at the end of the year, which is about the Roger Ailes sexual harassment scandal at Fox News, which happened, I believe, in 2015 and 2016 because he was fired at the during the Republican National Convention in 2016. And it's taken that long. So that's 2015-16 stuff that is like finally making its way to the screen. And I think you're right. I made the distinction earlier. There's a difference between how we respond to a piece of art and what political interpretations we want to find in it or discuss in it. And I think culture and critical conversation has definitely been evolving a lot in the last few years about that sometimes for good and sometimes in ways that can feel limiting, I think, to you and me. You know, there's good criticism and bad criticism of all things. But there is a conversation and there is also things that people are making in a script and someone sitting down and saying, okay, now I will tackle this big subject. And it feels like we're in that moment to the point that a Disney sequel has a a text that's like we need to help teach the children about the immigration crisis. It's truly it's, it's a, wild. It's a story about genocidal warfare. Yes. It's it's which is I guess the Lord of the Rings I suppose is also about that. I think a great number of things and you know as I'm thinking about this and thinking about a movie like Joker and earlier this week we talked about Parasite. Us I think was mm-hmm. one of the big conversation points of the year. All of those movies are about class and about not taking care of people we think need to be taken care of in the world. And so we draw a lot of the same conclusions. But those movies feel like they are serving up those metaphors explicitly to us, and they want them to be the talking point. Mm -hmm. Parasite, if you don't walk away from that movie thinking it's a a, a driving conversation about class in South Korea and maybe subsequently the world, you're probably not seeing the movie, right? It's okay to enjoy it as a thriller, but ultimately it's larded with all of this metaphor, even though it's making fun of that idea with the metaphorical repetition over and over in the movie. But it's it's in the text. It's the actual, again, not to spoil it, since— I'm sorry to all the people who responded to our Parasite podcast being like, I can't see it yet. It's We believe in you. We're going to try not to spoil it. You'll but get there. It, I don't think it spoils it to say that in the text, it's about a rich family and a poor family. They address it head on. Yes. And, and in some ways, it does feel like most stories are pitting an us versus them. So you could you could put this lens onto any film that you want. But this group of films, and we'll talk about each one, I think, individually and then see how they all fit together to understand why and how we got to this point. And it's I don't think it's as simple as Donald Trump was elected and everyone lost mm-hmm. their minds. I think that's um, too facile or, or an understanding of how this sort of thing works. Yeah, I think Trump in a lot of ways is this symptom of a larger issue that's also fueling these movies, which is the the need to conflate personal beliefs and 
it's the same reason that brands are like, hey, we also think that you should be nice to everyone by our cheeseburger or whatever. It reminds me a little bit of the Kendall Jenner Pepsi commercial. Yeah. You remember that? Mm-hmm. There, there is a version of that. And, and maybe we'll use that as a transition to talk a little bit more about Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, because it kind of feels like the Pepsi commercial version right. of these ideas. Now, I don't think that most people will walk away from this movie feeling as acutely strange about the political ramifications of the movie as you and I did. I think there were also moments during the movie where at various times you and I just turned to each other and were just like, what the fuck is going on here? That's true. You went to the restroom and came back and I had to update you on what had happened while you were gone, which is they discovered like the whole fairy race living in exile in a single (laughs) cave. Maleficent is not the only fairy. There are so many like her. I... Or the fairy of her kind. There are a lot of different fairies, I have to be honest. I didn't really understand the, like, genus of, the different genuses of fairies in this movie, which maybe was the point. Maybe all fairies are the same. Maybe we're all the same. It is a, it's a confounding biological text, I would say, just in general. (laughs) I don't understand what separates all of these different creatures. Here's what Maleficent Mistress of Evil is theoretically about. A formidable queen causes a rift between Maleficent and Princess Aurora, who is played by who? Michelle Pfeiffer. No. The, oh, Aurora. Aurora is played by Elle, Elle Fanning. Fanning. Oh, I thought you were talking about the Queen. No, it's the Michelle Queen is played Pfeiffer. by Michelle Pfeiffer. Together, they must face new allies and enemies in a bit to protect the magical lands, which they share. That's sort of what the movie's about. It, it's funny that this was a, a Sleeping Beauty story mm-hmm. that has now become, I guess, an opportunity for Elle Fanning to get married to some bro, some prince bro. Yeah. And in order to do that, there needs to be a sort of guess who's coming to dinner. Yes. style scene in which Maleficent, who is her godmother, has to meet the king and the queen of this other kingdom. Yeah. For the first 30 minutes of this movie, I was like, oh, this is about in-laws and <laughs> evil in-laws. And I was kind of like, okay, you know, even young children who are interested in fairies should learn that family dynamics can be complicated and that we all need to accept each other around the dinner table. And, and then it takes a turn. Yeah, it's actually much more red state versus blue state or America versus Mexico or something in that vein because it very quickly becomes a story about what makes us different as opposed to what makes us the same. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's not an uncommon trope in a Disney movie, but it's very rarely so violently told, so aggressively told. I I think Michelle Pfeiffer's character, I think Queen Ingrith is her name, Mm -hmm. um, is is like a real authoritarian, Trump-like backstabbing figure in the movie. And I don't think we're spoiling anything by saying that. And it's just a very odd text. And it's interesting that Angelina Jolie would participate in a text like this because she finds herself at this odd crossroads of her career. She, like most aging movie stars, I think realizes that IP is a pathway to relevance, to continued relevance. And, you know, in, in her way, she's kind of great in the movie. No one is more expressive and sort of an interesting to look at than Angelina Jolie. They don't let her do anything. But that's the thing. She It looks like she maybe only had like 10 or 12 days on set. Yes. She's not in the movie as much as you would want her to be in a movie called Maleficent. Yes. Why do you think that is? I assume because she agreed to do a sequel for a large amount of money with very limited work time. This is the first movie that she has been in since 2016. Are you aware of that? And wow. even that was Kung Fu Panda where it was her voice. Wow. I was astonished when I looked at this. But you know, she basically doesn't act anymore. Why is is it just she's raising a family? Like what? I think so. I mean, she was directing, more, directing. And she was directing. She made a film for Netflix, and I do think also 
in the same way we've talked about Brad Pitt's kind of turbulent couple of years, she was the other half of that. And I I suppose has just been spending time with family and directing and doing her charity work. I think also if there's not a lot for her to do, if this is what's on offer, I kind of understand why she's not do, working as much. It's a bit of a depressing state of affairs, not just for her, but for a lot of people. This is a a real, in the, in the parlance of Jalen Rose, a, a keep getting them checks all-star team mm-hmm. because there are a lot of really talented people in this movie, many of which are Oscar nominated, just slumming it, just slumming it big time. Let's, let's go through a couple of these people. Uh, Phantom Thread star and Oscar nominee Leslie Manville, who plays a fairy, a tiny fairy. Yes. Who I think is sort of animated. It's like the animated incarnation of Leslie Manville floating through the air. Right. It looked like they put the face on an animated fairy. She is joined by two other fairies, also two very talented actors, Juno Temple, a woman that I am in love with, mm-hmm. and Imelda Staunton, also an Oscar nominee. Right. Uh these three women like have very little to do in this movie, and that this is a, a paycheck role of all time. Yes. I I, I kind of don't know why you need Leslie Manville for this part. That was the moment in the credits when I turned to you and was like, what's happening? Because I was not aware Leslie Manville was in this movie until we got there. And then I when she showed up as the tiny animated fairy, who I kind of recognized from the original Sleeping Beauty, because those are the three fairies who like take care of Aurora or whatever. Yes. Oh dear. What are what's what are we doing here? It's very strange. Also in this movie, Ed Screen, who you may recall as the original Dario on Game of Thrones, mm. and also a guy who is frequently cast as an evil villain in films, appears here as a, a giant fairy named Bora. Sure. Another fairy, also an Oscar nominee, Chiwetel Ejiofor, who plays a character called Connell. I don't know. What is happening? Why is Chiwetel Ejiofor in this movie? I, it's It's for money. Good for him. He deserves it. Also in this movie is Sam Riley, who people may remember as uh, the star of the movie Control about Joy Division. Oh, yeah. Wonderful actor, hamming it up. We mentioned Michelle Pfeiffer. We mentioned Elle Fanning and Angelina Jolie. Warwick Davis, the beloved Willow, once again playing a little person slash creature. Trapped in a basement. This This is a really, really weird cast of people. I guess everyone just wants a piece of the Disney the paycheck they're just handing out money and why would you say no i i guess i would you play a fairy in a movie like this if they were like i want to take amanda's head shrink it down and put it on a fairy body the one thing i did wonder about with leslie manville in particular is it's definitely a paycheck they're barely in the movie but it does seem like they had to do some of the face technology which involves like having dots on your face and there's a lot of technological logistics and and an annoying stuff that you'd have to do. It's not like you just show up for two days is my understanding of how this would work. Now, maybe they have simplified the process and they can really just take a picture of her face and the the rest happens on computers. I am not an expert on this, but I, no, I don't want them putting dots on my face. I don't have patience. This is a call to all digital artists out there right now. If you will make this technology no. available, Amanda and I will submit ourselves <laughs> to having dots on our face to be digitally integrated with a, a small fairy. I will do it. It okay. probably only costs somewhere between $5 and $12 million okay. to do this, which is why these movies look simultaneously so good and so bad. Uh, it's it, You know, speaking of, it's kind of a CGI porn fest, the whole mm-hmm. movie. It, it never looks like you're in a real place. It always no. looks like you're either on a set or on a green screen created atmosphere. Um, these Disney movies are insane. This is insane. 
I, we talked about Aladdin and the Lion King this year, both yeah. of which I, I walked away from being like, we're in the Matrix. Yeah. This one maybe even more so. I just don't know who this is for. You and I went to a screening and there were some small children there. And within 10 minutes, I was like, are these small kids okay? Because this is very dark and pretty violent. And it's about evil fairies. There's very little kind of like frolicking and butterflies and the other stuff that I would assume kids would respond to. I mean, every parent you talk to is like, oh, my kid really liked Frozen except for all the scary stuff. This is like 50 times scarier than Frozen. In a lot of ways, they're kind of ripping off Game of Thrones throughout this Very movie. much. There's, Very I mean, much. there is a scene where... I, I, hit the 30-second button if you don't want Maleficent too spoiled for you, okay? <laughs> hit it right now. Okay. There is a scene in which Angelina Jolie comes back to life as a dragon. Yes. And then they do, I mean, they steal the well, actual it, shot of... I believe she's a phoenix. Whatever. She which looks is a bird, just like a dragon. But it's like a dragon Fam, bird. They, it is the shot of... And Elle Fanning is the Daenerys character. And she is standing in front of Angelina Jolie as a, quote, phoenix, a.k.a. dragon. <laughs> which, like, she's brought... Like, honestly, she makes her into a, quote, phoenix by crying over her ashes. It's, it's honestly, they recreated the whole sequence. Yeah, the narrative logic of this film is a bit confounding. But there is also just, you know, people pull in vats of CGI oil over the turrets. I don't even know my castle names, but whatever. It does look like they thought, okay, you know what's really popular right now? Game of Thrones and arguing about personal identity and, and 2019. And we're just going to make a movie about those two things. With fairies. Do children care? I don't know. I mean, do you think that when you look back at, and I know you're not a big animated movie person, mm-hmm. but the, the kids' movies, mm-hmm. do you look at them through a different lens and try to understand their themes a little bit more coherently as an adult? Like, if you look back, oh, I talk about The Wizard of Oz on the show mm-hmm. a lot. We've talked about it recently with Judy Garland. The Wizard of Oz is about a lot of big things. Yeah. You know, that novel is about a lot of big mm-hmm. ideas, about what we have and don't have, about what we want, what we aspire to, what, what keeps us down, what lets us rise up. Right. A sophisticated movie in, in many ways, even though it's about munchkins and evil witches. Right. I think you could make the case that these movies are trying to do a similar thing. They're trying to put lessons in the margins of the big pop entertainment. Yes. And that's always been the case. I think we talked a lot about um, the original Mary Poppins last year Mm -hmm. when the new Mary Poppins came out and I went back and watched it. An insane movie and is about the banking system (laughs) in London in 1960s, which I definitely did not remember because I was a child and I skipped past that. But the thing about Mary Poppins is that it also also has candy. It also has goofy musical numbers and supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and energy and things that I, as a three-year-old, responded to while then being taught about the banking system. And I don't know what candy this movie had. This went straight for the weird politics and the violence. It's funny that you mentioned the banking system. I feel like you've created an elegant bridge to our conversation about The Laundromat, which is a movie that has literally nothing in common with Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, except for the fact that um, it is about a bigger idea and it's not afraid to kind of communicate what it's about. However, it's also not afraid to be entertaining. Mm-hmm. So here's what the laundromat is about. When her idyllic vacation takes an unthinkable turn, a woman named Ellen Martin begins investigating a fake insurance policy. She slowly begins to unravel an international conspiracy of fraud and political destruction. As I mentioned earlier, this is a movie about the Panama Papers. 
told in episodic fashion. It's almost an anthology of stories using three characters as the center of the story. Ellen Martin is played by Meryl Streep. Delightful Meryl Streep bucket hat performance. Can't say enough about her. It's also about two lawyers who work to organize this grand international conspiracy played by Gary Oldman and Antonio Banderas having the time of their lives. Incredible stuff. Uh, They're absolutely wonderful. And I'm fascinated by this movie for two reasons. One, I think you and I just generally had a blast watching it. We loved it. And we walked out and turned to each other and we were like, what's wrong with everybody else? It's pretty instant. And that's the other thing is this movie premiered at a couple of film festivals this fall and got sort of roundly negative reviews. At best, middling reviews. I saw very few people that came out in support of the movie. And I, I wonder why that is. Because I feel like the whole point of this podcast is to talk about how the movies are trying to communicate some of the frustrations or some of the complex ideas in our political and social state right now. And this is a movie that is taking it head on, mm-hmm. but trying to do so in an entertaining fashion. Mm-hmm. And I think there are some times when it's a little on the nose. I would say the ending is pretty on the nose. Sure. But it didn't bother me. And I felt like it was simultaneously achieving its stated goal while entertaining me. Yes. And it might be the only movie on this list that authentically did that in a clear way. Yes. In a lot of ways, this is a classic they knew movie, right? Where it's like someone has to uncover a corruption or a cover-up by a large group of people over a a span of time. And that person is Meryl Streep. And, you know, we've seen a lot of those movies uh, from... Spotlight to, I guess, in certain... I mean, The Informant is another play on that idea. Same filmmaker, same screenwriter. Exactly. But because it's Steven Soderbergh, it can't be that rewarding... Mark Ruffalo screaming, they knew speech. He's he's playing with the genre and playing with the ideas. And so there's less... To me, it's really entertaining and and thoughtful. And you ask a lot of questions, again, about the banking system and governments and international finance, but it is also fun to watch. But except for the end, there's not really any moral. It's pretty nihilistic. It's kind of like, wow, we're really screwed. And I think people are resistant to that. People still want to have um, the lesson spelled out for them and to kind of have the movie help them feel better and to feel better about their own morals and what they believe. It's like virtue signaling, for lack of a better word. And I just kind of feel the laundromat is too much like, well, this is how it is. Good luck. In some ways, you're right. And I think that that's insightful. But I felt like the movie that this has the most in common with, whether you like it or not, is, well, there are two films. Let mm-hmm. me preface it by saying Steven Soderbergh has been on the record about saying that Damien Sisyphron's Wild Tales is right. the the movie that he used as a sort of structural inspiration, which is these largely unrelated parables kind of strung together to tell us something bigger about the world. But the movie it reminds me of it from a pop perspective is The Big Short. Of course. And The Big Short is told similarly. It's got this kind of dangling series of threads that we're trying to stitch together, all connecting people to one big problem that we have in this country. And it ends sort of satisfyingly. And then it ends with like a doomy grace note at the end. You know, that that note about Michael Michael Burry and the water. water. And that is that is a kind of a nihilistic movie. And I think Adam McKay's political fables are also quite nihilistic, regardless of how you feel about them, because I think it's not unreasonable to be completely cynical about all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And the reason that a movie like Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, which spoiler alert, ends happily because it's a Disney movie, feels like really inauthentic 
and weird. Totally. But I would say Vice is also a pretty nihilistic take. That's also, that's Adam McKay's more recent uh, biopic, sort of, of Dick Cheney and does not end happily. But I relate to that. I relate to like, guess what? We're fucked. But you know what? Vice, I mean, Vice was nominated for Oscars. And I think that's because if you have like Dick Cheney in the logline of your movie at this time in America, people will take it seriously because politics are the only things that get ratings. But it still was not received as rapturously as The Big Short. And people don't think, a lot of people were like, what is this? And that's because I think in a lot of ways it doesn't take a strong enough stand like against Dick Cheney or for something, right? I think I think that's right. I think you've located the trickiness with that movie. And we we had a basically like a backlash conversation sure. to that movie immediately after it came out. And I feel like we're having a similar one about this movie because of the same thing that you've identified, right. which is that it doesn't make people feel better. It makes them feel worse. Right. And the what the what role a piece of art like this has to resolve some of our feelings is an interesting question. Mm-hmm. I think it was it was it was often like sincerely related to the Joker question, which ends very similarly nihilistically and maybe was a bit more cynical in its execution, but I think is kind of seeking the same feeling, but for some reason that movie is also a runaway train hit. Yeah, I think the thing is that Joker the character is is nihilistic and that movie thinks it's nihilistic, but it's actually trying to assign blame to everything at once. Mm. And it is ulti- it isn't ultimately like, well, we're fucked. There's nothing we can do about. The problem is it's like mental illness is the problem and the rich people are also the problem and also liberals in the street are the problem. And have you considered that if you fucked Joaquin Phoenix, everything might be better? It, it is like, <laughs> I had to, I'm sorry. But it is, I think part of my problem with Joker is that it has too many beliefs and it's like it's confused and trying to spread the blame everywhere instead of that. What are you going to do? Yeah, but I think you could also walk away from the laundromat. And this is not a spoiler. Yeah. And also, I would highly recommend um, Secrecy World, the Jake Bernstein book that this movie is sort of based on because it's it's a much deeper and more sophisticated analysis of the Mm -hmm. Panama Papers story, which is difficult to explain and understand. But you can't walk away from this movie and think it's okay to defraud people out of their life savings. No. We, we know in, in our very being, in our heart, that that is evil and wrong. And that all of the things that are done to the people who are ca- characterized in this movie, and, and Meryl Streep's character is a composite, but she represents so many people who lost their life savings because of these crooks. Mm-hmm. We know that that's, we should fight that. That's It doesn't need to be explained to us that we should fight that. We do, but I do think there's also, you're not allowed to enjoy yourself in movies like this, where if you're learning a lesson about society, then it needs to, you have to pay some sort of penance of watching. And the idea that the laundromat is fun and that Gary Oldman and Antonio Vardaris are having like a nice time and they get all the laugh lines maybe doesn't really seem as punitive as it should be. Quote, again, this is not my belief. I really love this, but it does seem like people draw a line between I'm here to have fun and I'm here to say something about the state of America or the world in 2019 and aren't willing to combine the two. I think we need to see the movie, though, on the continuum of Steven Soderbergh movies because he already did the thing that you just described. He already made Traffic. He already made Aaron Brockovich. He made movies that were overtly political, that had something very clear to say about those issues, that also used kind of genre and style and the Soderberghian style of filmmaking to tell those stories. And it's really more with movies like The Informant when he clearly is like, I'm in full experimentation mode mm-hmm. where it the, the, the telling the tale is meaningful to me, but making sure that I'm 
creating something new and original and entertaining is also really important to me. Even with High Flying Bird, which we saw earlier this year, that is a movie just overwhelmed with ideas. And the Terrell McCraney script is all about, you know, personal empowerment. And it's a perfect 2019 NBA movie in so many ways. And it's about streaming culture and who owns the rights to intellectual property. Like it, it has a ton of ideas in it, but it's still entertaining. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I want to be super clear that being entertaining is the only thing that I am looking for at the movies. I And you and I are just, we're not even in the tank for Soderbergh. We're not taking money from him. We're just huge <laughs> Soderbergh fans. And I do think that a lot of people take either take his work for granted or don't respond to that, the lively mind in the way that you and I do and are looking for different things. But I, I agree with you. I I want to have a good time. In some ways, it makes me feel worse about the conclusion where I'm like, well, I really enjoyed that. And because I'm just, we're we're planned as the Titanic goes down, I guess. I, I think a big part of it is just that he was gone for a while and now he's fully back making feature films on a regular basis at a big clip. And he makes it look too easy. He I just makes that. it, he just just makes like, it look too easy. Ugh, all I want in life is for everyone to make stuff look easy. I don't want to see the effort. I, I, I agree with you, but it's four movies in three years all of which I think are interesting. Unsane, probably the least successful of the four. But even that is shot on a fucking iPhone and it's a gripping thriller. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you're right. We're taking him for granted. How do we talk about <laughs> the next film? Oh, I wish I had a gif of your face just then. I, You know, ever since we heard about Jojo Rabbit winning the audience award at Toronto, we knew that it was going to be a tricky conversation. Mm-hmm. I have interviewed Taika Waititi on this show. Mm-hmm. I'm a big admirer of his. I'm a big admirer of him as... As a writer, as a maker of both personal films and big top entertainments, you know that he is kind of a central, like a triangle figure for me, where it's like he made a great Marvel movie and he made a great little film and he made a cool TV show. Like he does all of the things that I think interest me particularly. This movie, Jojo Rabbit, is a complicated passion project for him. And it's coming at a time after trying to make it for 10 plus years where it feels like the timing is perfect, but also all wrong. And I'm going to describe the plot of the film very quickly, and then we can discuss maybe what works and does not work about this movie, okay? Yes. Here's the synopsis. Jojo is a lonely German boy who discovers that his single mother is hiding a Jewish girl in their attic. Aided only by his imaginary friend Adolf Hitler, Jojo must confront his blind nationalism as World War II continues to rage on. So, this is a lighthearted romp about a boy who is a Nazi whose imaginary friend is Hitler Mm -hmm. and he is in close consort, but also frustrated emotionally and maybe even romantically by an Anne Frank-esque figure hiding in their house. Yes. That's a lot. That's a lot. It is. It's a lot. I don't think that this movie totally worked for you. It's, this is the thing. It's a lot and it's also not a lot. Part of the reason this movie is a satire, it has been branded as an anti-hate satire, which is just the marketing department both deserves a raise for that and also a permanent vacation. Because <laughs> I just, I, but in a lot of ways, that's an encapsulation of where we are uh, with movies and with America and with this podcast that we're having right now. So it is a satire that I think the conversation around it has been like, how daring. And Taika Waititi plays Hitler and he plays him for mega laughs and he is a charming a lot of the comic relief is Taika Waititi in a Hitler costume which not something I would do probably not something you would do um 
So in a way that is daring, at the same time, this is sort of the safest satire subject that you can possibly pick. I think probably Nazis and World War II are the only thing left that the entire world, minus some Holocaust deniers, which we're not talking about those people. You got Fuck kicked off. Guys. You got kicked off Facebook, which is impossible to yeah. do. So good luck to you. But it's really the only just pure evil. We're all agreed. There's a good guy and a bad guy. And so the stakes in this movie, while being ab- about some of like the worst events in modern history, are also pretty low because you know who's good and who's bad. And we're not really learning anything new. Yeah, it's entertaining at times. I think some of the comedy works better than some of the drama. Um, Mm, I 100% disagree. Really? Yeah. You think it's better as a dramatic movie? Yeah. I think, listen, there's an adorable kid at the center of this. Mm -hmm. And he's very cute. And I think he's very good. And I think his emotional moments with the Anne Frank figure and to an extent with Scarlett Johansson, which I'm surprising myself by saying that, are, are very moving. And it's sweet. I think a lot of people... Well, not a lot of people because not that many people have seen this, but some people have complained that he's borrowing from Wes Anderson a lot in this movie. But it is those sort of wistful Wes Anderson-y childlike moments that worked for me a bit more. Also, the the sidekick kid, uh, Jojo Rabbit, has a best friend who is my favorite person in this movie. He's very adorable. The, the The protagonist of the movie is played by an actor named Roman Griffin Davis. And the 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 girl hiding in their mm-hmm. in their attic is played by Thomas and McKenzie, who was in the film Leave No Trace last year, which is one of the best right. movies of that year. She's also a tremendous actor. I think it's, it's more just that when Tyke's on screen, mm-hmm. even though he's doing a, you know, what could be said, like really unfortunate character choice, which is making Hitler kind of charming in a weird way, um, I Tyke is just funny. He's just and he's just entertaining to me. I think he his character, his Adolf Hitler character, kind of loses steam as the movie goes on. Mm-hmm. But I do I think that's a dramatic choice as this kid is evolving. But when we first meet him in the movie, and then we meet this Sam Rockwell character who's a kind of drunken Nazi leader doing kind of an update on his three billboards character. Yeah. It's kind of unfortunate that like a lot of the performers in the movie, all of whom I think are pretty undeniably talented, but Scarlett Johansson has had her fair share of complex interviews and conversations about the world in the last Mm -hmm. couple of years. Sam Rockwell, who's no doubt one of the most talented actors of his generation, continues to pick parts that make people wonder why he keeps playing the worst people in the universe. Yeah. And maybe some of that is typecasting. Maybe some of that is the challenge of taking on a role like that and making that person appealing. Um, It's a little bit hard to say. It's tricky. It's really tricky because Taika wants to make an entertaining movie. He made Ragnarok. You know, he made What We Do in the Shadows. So I think that that is a key aspect. And we were just having this conversation about the laundromat. It's like Soderbergh wants to entertain. But World War II comedies are have already been done and done about as well as any subgenre as could ever be done. In 1940, before the United States was in World War II, Charlie Chaplin did The Great Dictator. During World War II, We Got to Be or Not to Be, Ernst Lubitsch's film. That was while the war was happening. Mm-hmm. And those are two of the greatest comedies of that time. And then it goes on. You know, we get Billy Wilder looks at World War II and Style like 17. Not exactly a comedy, but a kind of like a comic portrayal of a lot of the complications of this. And it goes on and on. Steven Spielberg makes a really bad World War II comedy called 1941. There's dozens of movies about this. Yeah. An important aspect of a lot of those movies is that the comedy is at the expense of Nazis. 
And the real tough part for me, for Jojo Rabbit, was about 20 to 30 percent of the jokes were not at the expense of Nazis, but they were just really cruel things said about Jewish people. Yeah. And it's a satire. And we all know that everything they're saying is like wildly anti-Semitic. And the, I think the conceit of the script is that you're supposed to laugh at like, oh my God, I can't believe these horrible, ridiculous, anti-Semitic things these people are saying. But it is also people laughing at truly heinous remarks. And I was sitting in a theater where, you know, the 20th minute of people just laughing at these jokes that's not what they're laughing at, but I was uncomfortable. Yeah, it, it it's hard to not, because my desire is not to cancel a movie yeah, like Jojo no, no, Rabbit. No. I think that would be pointless, and there are things about it to recommend. And there, I, You know, I, there's one funny joke that is at the expense of the Nazis that I have been, you know, making to you in private because you can't yell, Metal for Hitler! <laughs> like, in public, that's a tough look, but it's a, it's a very funny bit. So it is possible to do that, and the movie does that at times, and I just think when it's leaning into the other part of the satire, it's it didn't work for me. How about that? The reason the movie, I think, has been shotgunned into the consciousness, even though very few people have seen it, and it's not opening wide this weekend, so a lot of people aren't going to be able to see it, is because it won that award in Toronto. And Green Book won that award last year. Mm-hmm. And Three billboards won the year before that. Three billboards won the year before that. And it feels like the kind of movie that's going to get picked over in a big way. And I think... Uh, Taika has a lot of supporters, a lot mm-hmm. of fans. He's a, he's a very charismatic guy. He's a very smart guy. And I, do you think that this is going to take the same, I don't know, trajectory that that Green Book or Three Billboards took? Do you think it's going to be hitting in major categories and that we're going to be hearing about it for the next four months or talking about it for that matter? I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, I don't either. I don't have a feel for this. Because there is a simplistic, ah, oh, these are adorable kids and it teaches us not to hate reading that I kind of think is what propelled it in Toronto. And, you know, there are parts of it that are actually very affecting in that way. So I don't mean to totally dismiss it. I did find the emotional stuff worked more for me than the comedy. There is also, it it is stated as a satire, but this is a, a pretty black and white issue where there are just like a lot of hateful things said in this movie. And on the internet, you can take it all out of context. And I honestly don't know where four months of that discourse, which much of which will not be fair to the movie, which I'm not a huge fan of, as everyone can tell. But it, I have no idea what that does for for Oscar chances. I just don't know how it mutates. Well, it has the possibility to just have that slingshot effect yeah. of we're going to get a lot of press about why this movie is problematic. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to get a lot of press from other people who are like, here's why it's not problematic. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to get ahead of the mm-hmm the narrative curve in some respects by right. having a conversation like this as clearly as we can. I'm not outright outraged yeah. by Jojo Rabbit. I'm also not like absolutely delighted by it. It's just, it fits somewhere right in the middle. You yeah. know, there's a lot of things about it that don't, didn't work for me either, just as you're saying. But it is a, it's a Fox Searchlight film with yeah. movie stars and, and Oscar winners. And right. it's got, it's a World War II movie and it's got the sheen of respectability. Yes. So that means it's probably going to be at least in the conversation for a I while. I think so. Buckle up for so many what can comedians can say and not say conversations. I mean, that stuff, that's going to be going for three months. It's like pissing in a hurricane. It's yeah. just dangerous stuff. I know. Uh, I'm going to talk briefly about Zombieland Double Tap. Okay. Here's the, here's the plot synopsis before we talk to Ruben Fleischer a little later in the show. Ten years later, zombie slayers Tallahassee, Columbus, Wichita, and Little Rock square off against the newly evolved undead. So Zombieland, seen through 
a certain prism mm-hmm. made in 2008, released mm-hmm. in 2009, right into the Obama presidency. Mm-hmm. It's maybe a Tea Party movie. Okay. It is maybe a movie about the, the vicious undead and those of us just trying to survive yeah. with a measure of decency and shotguns. Sure. Maybe it's seen the other way around. Maybe the zombies are the people who desperately need help and need to be fed. And maybe right. the killers are hateful and protecting their guns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's overthinking it. Maybe it's just a great zombie comedy, which is largely what I think it is. This new movie, I think it's a lot easier to situate it in this conversation that we're having, in part because of the way that the characters are named, which is by their cities and by the states that they come from. And that is how people identify each other. They don't talk, they don't say, hey, Steve. They say, hey, Tallahassee. Okay. Because that defines where you are and where you came from and what you represent. And even though it's just a dumb zombie comedy, it weirdly also has a lot to say (laughs) about the world. I mean, that's not surprising, right? All horror movies and sci-fi and what what is what does zombie fit under what genre i think it's largely horror okay all have political yeah, the, the, the first zombie movie george yeah. romero's night of the living dead is one of the great allegories of in film history of course and it's not unreasonable to, to look at it that way even though it features woody harrelson as like a shit-kicking zombie killing mm-hmm. badass i plainly like this movie worked i don't did the world need another zombie land movie no but it's a movie with Jesse Eisenberg and Emma Stone and Woody Harrelson and then a bunch of other fun cameos just like the first film had with Bill Murray. Yeah. And it'd be it's nice to have a movie that even though we have wedged it into this conversation, you could just go to and be like, that was cool. And then mm-hmm. walk out and then not have to deal with it anymore. Yes. Just be like, it was cool to have a cool movie. Fewer and fewer of those movies are made. Exactly. So I wanted to at least situate it in this. Uh, of these four, do any of these movies like actually matter? I know that we could say, well, nothing that happens on MSNBC or CNN every night matters either if you wanted to get truly nihilistic. But in the context of a high-stakes world in which we just came out of a democratic debate, we're engaged in all this impeachment conversation at all times. There's obviously horrible things happening in the world in Syria and Turkey. Does any of this stuff like really rise to the level of meaningfulness? Do you mean in terms of will it change anything? Or yeah, will it is make it people worth... see the world differently? Will it, will it help us understand something we didn't understand before? Well, no, because nothing helps anyone understand what the, people only understand what they want to understand and see what they want to see, whether it be in the news or in art or in pop culture. And I think you and I are probably both guilty of that, too. So that's sure. not I'm not trying to dismiss anyone. So, no, I think. In a lot of ways, they're all things that we have seen before. You know, Maleficent is bizarre and I have never seen sexy fairies quite like that, though. I'm told there's just a whole selection of those on the CW at any given moment. I'm sure there's like a whole I thought you were going to say on the dark web. It's probably a whole Probably that too. I think they're like in the YA for sure there's like yeah. a whole sexy fairy I'm talking situation. about like Pornhub here. I'm, I think it can get okay. really dark really fast. I'm, that was essentially what was <laughs> happening in Maleficent too. I was like there are children yeah. here. But in the idea that a large blockbuster is sort of ineffectually grappling with real life issues and trying to translate them to children. That's not particularly new, is it? No, it's not. You know, and I think the laundromat is a is Soderbergh flexing style wise. But like I said, it's someone chasing down some documents and it turns out there was a conspiracy. And the only way to prevent against those conspiracies in the future is to hold institutions accountable, which is what it ends. We, th- we've been making those movies for forever. I love those movies. I don't mean to dismiss them. I do too. Jojo Rabbit is a satire about Nazis. You said yourself, we've been making these for 80 80 years. years. Had to do the math there. Thank you. And then 
zombie movies are have been allegories since they were existed, since they were invented. So do they ma- will they change anyone's mind? No. Will they reinforce things that people want to see or believe? Probably. Will reinforcing those beliefs uh, make people money? To varying degrees, yes. I think that's that's the cable news strategy, right? So in a lot of ways, this is just copying. And, and not to bring it back to Donald Trump, but to bring it back to Donald Trump, in a lot of ways, it's just ratings. And it's just who can get attention and who can uh, verify people's own beliefs about themselves. Okay, so this is a segue into a broader conversation I want to have about this, the role that movies play. Because mm-hmm. if these individual movies don't kind of quote-unquote matter or won't change the way people feel about the world or understand things, that they're just variations on a theme, mm-hmm. then has our popular culture changed? And has this actually become the homogenous normal where everything is sort of about this? And even the most commercial products that we encounter, which is a Disney sequel, there can be no mm-hmm. more commercial product in the universe mm-hmm. than a Disney sequel. Is there a... for? utter lack of a better phrase, a awakening that has happened here, where even in the Maleficent movie, I'll, I'll, I'll cite something that I thought was interesting. Yeah. I, was, I was reading Richard Lawson's review of, the, of this film in Vanity Fair. And in the review, Lawson cited the YouTuber Lindsay Ellis and what she calls, quote unquote, woke Disney. And, and Lawson writes, Ellis explicates what she sees as an unseemly trend. Companies taking cues from social justice discourse to tweak their vintage wares hemming and darting them into more culturally acceptable products without any real thoughtfulness put towards the issues they're paying lip service to, to the wrongs they're trying to redress. I thought that was an interesting thing, and I have watched some of uh, Lindsay Ellis's videos. And she has a kind of almost like knowingly smarmy approach to the like, oh God, look at how Disney is like bending over backwards to make Aladdin seem way more woke than it really actually is because Disney. And it reminds me a little bit of the discourse that I was experiencing when I was in college and learning about the mass media and journalism. And every deeply enlightened professor who lived in upstate New York and didn't have a job <laughs> was like, CBS News is owned by a corporation. And what corporations care about is the bottom dollar. So everybody who is a journalist at this company is complicit in this grand design. And then they would feed you a Robert McChesney book or a Noam Chomsky book. Mm -hmm. And they would be like, it's time for you to be radicalized and to be a part of independent media. I had a lot of professors like that. And this is a slightly um, snarkier iteration of that. Right. But it's an indication that maybe we shouldn't seek popular entertainment to help us better understand our world, which I think is a complex and interesting idea. Yes. So I have not watched her videos. I just read what um, Richard Lawson shared. In his review, and it's funny, when I read this, I imagined that her point of view was that these companies aren't doing enough, that these companies are putting on the cloak of caring about feminism or immigration or the politics of the day uh, so far as it will appeal to an audience to get people to buy their products. But It sort of seems like she's coming, the way that you described her video is that that's not the case and she's criticizing the the impulse to look for those values from corporations and from our pop culture. I think it's column A and column B. Okay. I think it's like this is disingenuous that they're trying to seem like literally virtue signaling by making their movies sort of kind of about these things, but also that we shouldn't be looking to this for this stuff. Like I think think it's, it's fairly 
it's it's smart stuff what she's trying to identify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even okay. if, uh, and it's like I said, it is complex. I think you can say both of those things are true in this right. scenario. I don't know how I feel about it. I, I tend to think um, authorial or corporate intent is ultimately not the most important thing when it comes to this sort of stuff. And if you draw out a bigger idea from a piece of culture that you otherwise would not would not have occurred to you, mm-hmm. I think that's valuable. I don't think you only have to read The Economist to get the truth about what's happening in the world. I I I, I was really inspired and informed about a lot of things by. I don't know, consuming Star Wars or or reading horror fiction or uh, watching Cheers. Like right. I, I remember thinking playing video games was actually a, a fairly radical thing where not not in the sort of gamer game moment, but as a kid in the 90s, I always felt like video games had this unique ability to make me more responsive to the mm-hmm. world and to think quicker. Now, maybe I'm just justifying all that time I spend playing video games, but what you get out of something isn't directly just the time spent. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's just also, practically speaking, what your professors were suggesting and kind of, and what Lindsay Ellis is suggesting is essentially impossible just from what people have access to and capitalism and how people make money and can buy things and consume things. And But to a larger extent, it's that philosophical idea of you're going to change things from within versus going to build your own thing on the side. And the problem with going to make your own movies that have no corporate backing and or don't engage with politics in any way is that, like, no one's going to see it. That's exactly it. And I, I don't know if a tree falls in the forest. I, does it make a sound? Not when it's a movie. Like, not at all. And so while I agree that a lot of this stuff is smarmy and fake, and it's not even that it's fake. It's just... It's thin. It's it's these well the you said you don't want to worry about corp like corporation intent which Jesus Christ I can't believe I said that and you know I don't really either except to say I I don't think corporations are never doing something because they like have a personal belief corporations aren't people they are doing it because it's going to sell things that's literally the only reason that a corporation exists certainly so, one publicly traded yeah so I do believe. That's that's a good distinction. I do believe in being skeptical of that because it but at the same time, if a movie makes me see something differently than if it was, I don't know. I mean, this is such a slippery slope. I, You know, everything is nuanced. It, it, you should probably think about where things come from. We could use the phrase everything is nuanced to end every segment. I, the thing that this reminds me a bit of was something that Chris was pointing out when we were talking about Joker last week, which is that. The idea of the Trojan horse mm-hmm. being kind of feeling a little bit ugly or unseemly in the in the aspect of Joker and some of the issues that it's trying to deal with. But you pointed out yourself the idea that zombie movies are always a metaphor for something else in our society. Many horror films, a lot of science fiction is like that. So none of this stuff is new, I think. And in Disney movies, historically, there's a lot of messages, right. quote unquote messages, even if those messages are be good to your neighbor or something to that effect. This time, it just feels like, is this an accidental bleeding of our discourse into the stuff that we make? Or is there a lot of purposeful decision-making happening? We we can't ultimately know until we talk to, I don't know, Joachim Ronning, who made Maleficent Mistress of Evil, and say, excuse me, sir, is this about the class war in America? 
Well, and his answer will be different from the however many people at Disney that worked on it and greenlit it and put it through there. Everyone has a different checklist. So the idea of a the only thing about the idea of a Trojan horse is that art has been funded by wealthy people and has been a way to smuggle in ideas and uh, provocations and new forms since the beginning of time. So it feels really crucial, right? It feels fraught right now. And it has kind of infiltrated popular culture in a way that maybe we wouldn't have expected since the monoculture is basically dead. This is the new monoculture, right? That's that's what it is. Arguing about politics in whatever form it is, whether it's on MSNBC or in a movie, is the new monoculture. It's all that we share. That's the smartest thing anybody has said on this podcast, and it is also the most deeply depressing. Well, I know. I'm a, I'm a, a Soderbergh nihilist at the end of the day. God. Amanda, thank you for endeavoring to talk about all of these things and not intoning the name of Donald Trump too frequently. I appreciate that. Did my best. Please stick around. We're going to have a conversation now with Zombieland Double Tap filmmaker Ruben Fleischer, who also made a couple of other movies you may have heard of, like, I don't know, Venom. Delighted to be joined by Ruben Fleischer. Ruben, thanks for being here. I couldn't be more excited to be talking to you. Ruben, I'll bet everybody's asking you why and how you got another Zombieland movie across the board, but I, I have to ask you to start this conversation. I'm surprised and happy that there is a second one, but how did this happen? It uh, is literally 10 years in the making. We, uh, Soon after the first one came out and and had an unexpected success, the studio naturally wanted to pursue a sequel. Um, and the writers, Paul and Rhett, Wernick and Reese, who had written the original, wrote a really funny draft um, that we all really liked. But it just kind of missed the mark a little bit. And in hindsight, I think the the unexpected failure of that script was that it was the bad guys were fellow people and it just changed the tone of the movie. Like it's easy to laugh and enjoy kind of the over the top violence and zombies and all that in Zombieland one and two. But when it turned towards fellow people, it just, it, it shifted the the fun and the comedy of the movie. And so we kind of just put it on the shelf. And then um, about five years ago, after I was kind of licking my wounds after Gangster Squad didn't perform quite as well as I would have liked it to, I was thinking about how fun it was making the first Zombieland and what a unexpected gift getting to work with that cast and creating that world and working with those writers was. Um, so we set about trying to come up with a sequel at that point. Um, Paul and Rhett were very busy with Deadpool 1 and 2, and so they were serving as executive producers, and we got um, this guy, Dave Callahan. He wrote the first draft, and it was terrific. But over subsequent drafts, uh, it kept getting better and better, but it didn't have the voice of the original quite perfectly nailed. So finally, once uh, Deadpool 2 was done, Paul and Rhett were able to turn their attention towards our movie and uh, wrote a killer draft that the cast all signed up for. And then it was just a question of finding time uh, that they all had in a window to make the movie, which was actually just February of this year. We we shot it, uh, you know, only seven months ago or something like that. Did I have a lot of questions about that? Did the, yeah, that was so much talking. I apologize. No, no, it was it was there was a lot of good information. Did did the success of Venom for you make it easier to 
do this movie or was all of that kind of in motion? They were completely separate. Like, um, it was kind of getting very real Zombieland prior to Venom starting shooting, I think. Um, I'm pretty sure that we were still working on drafts while we were in the midst of Venom, but I think the cast had signed on and the draft was, the Rhett and Paul draft was was done. And and then it was just a matter of, um, yeah, figuring out schedule. But the crazy thing is that, so Venom came out, we worked all the way up until its release. Like, I think we finished the movie two weeks before it came out, and then I had to promote it and stuff. Went away for a week with my family for vacation. Came back, started prep the next day. Was We prepped for three days and sorry, three weeks in L.A., and then uh, I was in Atlanta again. I've spent 12 months of the last, I don't know, two years in Atlanta shooting movies. You must be very tired. I'm tired, yeah. I think I'm going to take a little breather after this one comes out. So Venom is a, an object of fascination and 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 is quite beloved here at The Ringer. Um, and I think it actually has a similar relationship to Zombieland. We do a podcast here called The Rewatchables where we rewatch old movies and talk about them. It has to be a certain kind of a movie to become a rewatchables in the way that you define it as really amorphous. But I feel like Zombieland is one of the last movies that kind of got in under the wire as a kind of like cable classic or something you would stumble upon and just be like, I'm so happy to be around this movie, around these characters. Did you sense that right away? Because it was not like a mega box office hit, though it did well. But did you know right away that you kind of had something that people connected with? Yeah, and it it only grew with time, too, because as you mentioned, it it was something people watched a lot on DVD or um, cable. But the thing that, that I've found, and certainly I think the cast even more so have found, is that the the fans of the movie have really deep connection to the movie. I mean, Woody's made 100 movies or something like that, and he says that's the movie that people always ask him about and always tell him how much it means to them. Jesse, the same way. Like, of all the movies he's been in, people always say, I watch it with my dad, or we watch it every Thanksgiving, or it's become a bit of this just kind of family. I think because it is at its heart a family movie, it has that feeling. Like a guy, a stand-up comedian that I— that I'm friends with told me like it was the only movie he and his father ever watched together, you know, and it's, it has that kind of resonance, uh, I think because of the family thematic of the movie. And so, um, that is what we tried to tap into with this sequel is, you know, just kind of maintaining that family feel. And in this case, Little Rock played by Abigail Breslin, she's like a typical, you know, teenager who, just as sick of her parents and wants to get out of the house. And so that's what drives the story in this version. You know, I think seen through a certain lens, there's a take that the, the movie has a kind of a political bent to it as well, a kind of like us versus them thing in it. Do you guys see that in the movie when you're making it as well? No, not at all. And actually, I'm, I don't, I'm not even quite sure what, I'm, what you mean by that because I, I don't think I've heard it before. Well, so let's just say, one, each character is identified by sort of the city or where they come from. And then also there's obviously a kind of a zombies versus living people aspect to it. And there are a lot of movies right now that seem to be kind of consumed by portraying whether it's like a class war or, you know, people who think one way versus people who think another way about things. Maybe I'm just a little bit poisoned by watching a lot of movies that are about that, but I couldn't help but even see some of this movie through that lens. Yeah, I think that zombies you know, since their origin have always represented some existential threat. Like people say that originally with the Romero movies that it was about the Cold War. Um, and over time, I think zombies are 
representative of uh, anxiety or something like that. Um, so in, in our movie, I, I think they're just heightened stakes. That's how I always saw them is like you can have this like because for me the closest reference point for Zombieland was National Lampoon's Vacation. So it was about like a family road trip and the zombies escalated the circumstances and made everything a little little have a little bit more stakes or gravitas, which I think only benefits the comedy. Um, but at no point have I ever thought of the zombies as representative of anything. Um, it's just a fun world to play in. Uh, this post-apocalypse and to like imagine, you know, if there's no one left, like, yeah, sure, you could go live in the White House or you could live in Graceland or wherever else it is. You know, you take advantage of of just that wish fulfillment. There's a fun nod to The Walking Dead in the movie. Do you feel like, was it harder in any way to make a zombie movie in the aftermath of the kind of glut that came in the aftermath of your first movie? I think that um, there's two answers to that. One is, for us, it wasn't any harder because, or, or I should say, speak for myself, for me, it wasn't any harder because I honestly haven't seen much of what's come after Zombieland. Um, I I was just excited to focus on what we all, all loved about the first one and try and just carry that forward without being too repetitive. Uh, so the, that's one answer. The, the second answer is that I feel like the glut of zombie content, if anything, has made it more broader, commercially appealing main, to a mainstream audience. Because I think at the time of Zombieland, you know, zombies were the kind of a sub-genre. Like, you only went to see something like that if you really love zombies and you're kind of a horror person. But with the success, success of Walking Dead, I feel like it's it's made them more acceptable and uh, people just don't sort of categorize it in the same way and are more open to it. So we'll see We'll see what happens this weekend at the box office. But um, my hope is that it'll have broadened the audience that would be willing to go see something called Zombieland. Did you see yourself as a person who would make horror movies when you were first coming up? I know it's not a de- strictly defined horror movie. but No, I mean, in fact, I passed on it the first time I read it because I, I was like, I don't know anything about zombies. And that's why Vacation is a reference point because I was always just a huge comedy nerd and grew up loving all those 80s comedies. The majority of my work prior to Zombieland, actually exclusively my work prior to Zombieland had been comedy. Um, So that was was my way in. Um, And I remember being on set, you know, I was really pretty inexperienced to be directing a studio movie. And uh, saying to my DP, you know, I've never shot an action sequence before. Like, I've never shot anything with a gun in it. And he said, well, I don't think I've shot anything without a gun in it. Because he came from, like, you know, J.J. Abrams school of, like, Alias and Cloverfield and other things. And uh, and so he, you know, I had a lot of help from people who could, you know, Tony Gardner, a makeup um, artist who's done huge like zombie type movies. So I surrounded myself with people who really knew how to do stuff that I didn't. And my, my focus was more on the cast and the performances in the, in the comedy. Have you felt like since these movies, it's expanded the kinds of movies that you want to make? Cause it's, I mean the, the, the different films that you've chosen to work on are pretty diverse and in all kinds of different genres. Yeah, that was purposeful. Like, uh, you know, that, and another reason perhaps why Zombieland 2 didn't happen right away was because I was excited to try different things. And 
uh, kind of stretch my le- legs or spread my wing, whatever mixed metaphor I can come up with. Um, yeah, I was just excited to try different things. And and with 30 Minutes or Less, it was a dark comedy. I was a history major with a focus on 20th century. So Gangster Squad was like a dream come true, getting to go to 1949 Los Angeles and work with a cast like that. And then Venom was probably closest to Zombieland just because I always saw it as like this kind of horror comedy, you know, superhero movie. Um, for me, the reference point for that movie was um, American Werewolf in London. And so uh, that experience of, you know, that 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 Eddie goes through in that movie was not dissimilar from uh, the lead character in, in that movie. And so um, those were those were my reference points. But I, I couldn't have been more happy to return to Zombieland just because I think it really is just my sweet spot, just fun, funny, great actors, great performances. And and I'm really proud of, um, you know, the casting of the original. And I think the casting of this one's really strong, too. And, and Zoe Deutsch, I think, is going to be a breakout star from this movie. And hopefully, so have, yeah, she really uh, kind of steals most every scene she's in. And for me, you know, that that if if I had any signature as a filmmaker, I think if you look at the movies I've made, um, the casts of all of them are pretty remarkable. Um how why is that the case? Is you just is that luck? Is that something that you've made? No, I just don't people? compromise, I think. I think I won't do it unless I feel confident enough to have people that are really terrific at the center of them and I'm willing to make or do whatever it takes to get, you know, those key elements. And um yeah, I mean, like McBride, Aziz's only starring role is 30 Minutes or Less, and Jesse and Nick Swartzen and Michael Pena are as funny as anybody in that movie, and Gangster Squad is like as premium, uh, you know, kind of action dramatic cast as you could hope to have. And then, you know, Hardy's one of the greatest actors working today, so to have him in Venom, those all, I would say that's like the signature of what I do is just making sure everyone's really great. And I love discovering new talent. Um, as was the case with Zoe in this movie. I think she really, um, I'm sure that she'll have lots of good things ahead of her. Yeah, I feel like Emma and Jesse also really kind of became more well-known to mainstream audiences in part because of Zombieland. Yeah, it was Jesse's first ever studio movie maybe or definitely starring role in a studio movie. And we fought really hard to get him. Woody was a huge help in casting him actually originally. Um, The studio like some other people and Woody and I kind of fell on our swords for him. And that, that was great to have Woody's uh, support for that. And then Emma, yeah, she, she had a great role in super bad, but this I think was her first starring role maybe. But yeah, I mean, both of them, like I, I was saying to somebody the other day, like uh, when we shot the first zombie land, like literally no one knew who they were, you know, you could walk down the street anywhere and people had no idea. Um, whereas that's not the same necessarily now. Is it difficult to get big stars to participate in, like, your movies have a very kind of, like, hyper-real, kind of cockeyed, sometimes really comic tone, and a lot of the actors that you work with are Academy Award-nominated and are maybe considered very prestigious, but you're able to kind of get them to fit inside the worlds that you're building. Is that hard to do? I I think uh, at this point, hopefully, people have a sense of what my taste is and what I'm what I'm focused on, and so in signing up, you would hope that they would be committing to something like that. But, but I am, um, I don't know. I, I, I know that on the first movie, 
Woody tells this story that when he first saw the script for Zombieland, um, he called his agent and said, you know, has it really come to this? Like, I have to do zombie movies? Like, is that where I'm at in my career? Um, and then similar to me, the agent said, uh, you know, just read it. Like, it's really good. And then I remember having to fly to New York to meet Woody at a vegan restaurant and convince him to try and do the movie. And, and he took a lot of a big leap of faith because, you know, he, he would joke. He's like, I can't believe I like working with a guy who's only done a couple Burger King commercials. Like, and, and that's really, you know, at that point, I'd just done a handful of low-budget short films and a whole lot of music videos and commercials. Do you feel like at this stage, you have to find ways to creatively integrate popular genre with the kinds of movies that you want to do? Because it's something you've done really well, but I wonder as like a studio filmmaker in 2019, do you have to look for a super saleable property to do the stuff you want to pull off? I think it helps for sure. I think um, that's just the reality of the marketplace right now, that it's harder for, you know, we've said during the course of promotion for this film, like if if we'd approached the studio now with a movie called Zombieland, I don't know that we would have been able to get it made, even with this cast. Like, um, it just kind of falls between the tra- cracks. And I can certainly say that after having done a big tentpole like Venom, it's just a different thing. And And if you look at, the box office on that movie, it seems like that's what audiences are excited about. And it feels like the marketplace has um, become a bit bifurcated where there's like the really, really big uh, movies and then there's the smaller independent movies. But everything uh, between, I think it's it's tougher, it's tougher and tougher um, to get them made and for them to break through. I remember when the MIA's Galang video came out. I was in New York at the time, and it was a very it was a phenomenon um, <laughs> in clubs in New York. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what kind of a filmmaker you thought you were going to be, what kind of films you thought you were going to make at that time, and kind of how that shakes out with where you are right now. It's it's really a great question. Um, I came up under Miguel Arteta. Uh, that was my like I didn't go to film school. I moved out here uh, to Los Angeles, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do. I had kind of like a vague ambition of being a television executive, although I didn't really know what that meant or what they do. Uh, And so I got a job at uh, Dawson's Creek as a PA because I knew Mike White, uh, and he was working on the show. I knew him because he went to my college. And uh, and so I worked as a PA, and then they went and made this movie called Chuck and Buck uh, as soon as the second season of Dawson Creek was over. And I got a job being Mikel Arteta's assistant for 200 bucks a week. And it was a two hundred thousand uh, dollar movie shot on HD video, like old school mini DV style, not modern. And uh, such a fascinating movie. Yeah, and it, it was shot in, in twenty days, super as low budget as they get. But for me, that was great because I never went to film school, and this was my first ever time on a set, and I was completely like subsumed by it. And Miguel was so generous and let me like help out. Like I got to sit in in casting sessions or like, he'd be like, I really need a location. Can you help me? And I'd like go try and find a bathroom for somebody to shoot in or, or whatever. And, uh, and I was on set. I was like the second camera assistant who clicks the the board thing. Like I, I did every job and I worked, you know, seven days a week and I was, I was so happy. And that was like when I really truly fell in love with it. And so my, my, background was truly independent film with some really great independent filmmakers and my taste was like coen brothers uh you know david o russell alexander payne 90s classic 
um, Tarantino, you know, independent film with some real hardcore 80s George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, John Landis uh, roots. And so I think I always thought I'd go down that road of being an independent filmmaker. Um, but my shortcoming is that I'm not a great writer. And so many of the great filmmakers I reference write their own movies and then execute them. So as a non-writing director, um, I was a little bit more reliant on what material I could find. And I think it's harder, in fact, to make an indie film if you haven't written it than it is maybe to get hired, or at that time, get hired to direct a studio movie. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I just always loved comedy. I was making really comedic things, whether they were shorts or commercials or music videos. And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of the lane I just instinctually went down and that, that led to being able to make a studio comedy. But yeah, it's a great question. I mean, someday I hope I'll be able to do something a little bit more, um, I guess, I don't know, performance oriented or a smaller story or less, you know, inherently commercial but having tried, like you mentioned, a couple different directions as a filmmaker, you know, 30 Minutes or Less was a very dark, kind of very dark comedy. And Gangster Squad was a more dramatic action movie. I, I've realized what I'm best at is making really fun, crowd-pleasing, you know, funny movies with some action and some, uh, some style. I, I'm proud of the style that I bring to film the films I make. And... Uh, and I, that's kind of my sweet spot. So um, something tells me I'll probably try and play to my strengths, at least for the next little while. Tell me about the style, because I think particularly the Zombieland movies, which had a kind of almost video game influenced aesthetic with the kind of text on screen and the it's like a heavy use of slow-mo. How did you figure out that that movie had to look and feel a certain way? Because it, it feels like it's very much in relationship to the new one. I would say it was more influenced by music videos and commercials than video games because I'm not a big gamer, but um, I was obsessed with music videos and just all, I think there's so many cool, you have to make it visually, you know, really uh, kind of arresting. That's like part of the job of a music video director. And if you look at Spike and Gondry and like uh, some of the greats, that's what I was always trying to aspire to. And so... Um, with Zombieland, you know, with your first movie, I think you want to really kind of come out the gate, guns blazing. And so I did everything I could um, to, to bring style to it. Um, the opening sequence was shot with a camera called a Phantom, which I was lucky enough to have used for a commercial. But I, 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 I'd be curious if someone can correct me, but I think that was the first time it was ever used in a feature. And it shoots up to a thousand frames a second. And, and just when I read the script, I can't even remember how they described that opening sequence, but I just kind of conceived it like a music video for the first one where it was just like vignettes of the apocalypse telling the story of how the zombies took over and wanting to shoot it super stylized with that camera. So that's, that's how that happened. And then the rules were always in the script. Um, and I just was excited to find a way to make them look distinctive and I had seen a FedEx commercial where they had done that tracked in type where it looks like it's actually in the space as opposed to on top of it. Mm -hmm. And I remember that was like my reference point. I was like, I wanted to look like this FedEx commercial. I mean, Fincher had done it with the opening credits for Panic Room, mm -hmm. but the scale was so extreme that it was a little different and they weren't as animated and active. It was more just like they were in the world of New York. Um, but uh, I was really excited to, and, um, you know, have them be a, 
kind of almost a character in the film. And I was lucky enough to work with a guy named Ben Conrad, who at the time was at a company called Logan. And they did the credits and the rules and I think hit it out of the park. And then, um, yeah, I've always just been a fan of slow-mo. I think um, that scene in The Untouchables that De Palma did with the baby carriage is to this day one of the most like most perfect action sequences. And it's all entirely slow-mo. But lots of great filmmakers have used slow-mo to pretty incredible results. And I'm definitely, you know, biting from them. But the the finale of the the first Zombieland was almost all slow-mo as Columbus like, you know, goes to try and save uh save the girls and uh, i think um we we tried not to overdo it in this one but the end of the the double tap when when tallahassee's doing the buffalo jump is definitely all slow-mo as well is was it hard to get the studio to understand some of those choices that you were making do you have to clear those things before you start using them no we were so under the radar with the first movie i think they didn't even know we were making the movie half the people at the studio they, uh, we, like, I remember the head of the studio saw the movie for the first time at our first uh, uh, preview, or no, our only preview for that movie, and it did remarkably well, and she, like, danced a jig and hugged me, but I, I swear <laughs> to God, she may not have ever heard of the movie prior to that. Well, actually, that's not true, because she hired me for the job. So she knew, she had definitely read the script and knew it just existed, but I think because we were off in Atlanta, it was... Before, like, dailies, I'm sure, were, like, as easily to be viewed that far away. They they kind of just left. And we, we're really smart. You know, it was only a $20 million movie. Um, so in, in the scheme of things, we were just kind of an afterthought, which was great because they just let us do what we did. And I think when they saw it, they're like, holy cow, wow, you guys had no idea what you guys were up to. Did you feel um, you needed to top or match the the Bill Murray aspect of the first film, which I feel like is such a beloved and well-remembered thing. Yeah, we definitely felt a lot of pressure, but where do you go from there? I mean, it's like that 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 felt like if we tried to get anyone else, it would it just wouldn't begin uh to, you know, just I don't know, it was so singular that we kind of ended up just uh repeating <laughs> ourselves, which we also did with Metallica and um, you know, Still works though. Yeah, but that I think that's the thing. It's like they were defining components of the original, and I think a lot of sequels just kind of do the same thing. And I feel guilty for doing the same thing. But in those two instances, like you can't beat Metallica; just sets the tone perfectly. I'm so grateful that they let us license a song again for this one. And then with Bill Murray, I mean, it's just like he's the all-time greatest, and he was like a key to that film in a major way. So it felt awesome to be able to figure out a way to include them again a second time. Are there some other genres that you want to try out? I actually would really love to try a musical. People always say that. When really? I ask this That's question. funny. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why? Is well, for that? me, it's my music video background. Like it just, mm. it's really um, something that has inspired a lot of music videos, and just I've seen lots of musicals. And um, now that I have kids, we watch like some of the classic m- musicals. And they really love them, and I, I think I think it would just be fun, just because they are so visual and so fun. So that would be one. I mean, I, I would be thrilled to do a um, like a space, like a Star Wars type movie. I mean, I'd be thrilled to do a Star Wars movie, but like, a, <laughs> but anything like in outer space, I think would be pretty cool. Uh, just because I loved, I'm not a huge sci-fi guy, but I just love Star Wars a lot. Mm-hmm. So I think that'd be pretty fun. 
Um, and like I said, I, I, I'd love to make an, a really small movie. There's a, a guy, who, a DP, who I've been working with for since the very beginning of my music video career, who I would love to have the opportunity to make a movie with. And, and that would probably have to be on a smaller scale. So um, I'd love to make a movie just so I could, he and I could shoot a movie together. Is it weird when something that you originated becomes IP? As somebody who has worked with, is that Zombieland? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think the writers deserve more credit for that than I do, or probably legally have more claim to it. But um, <laughs> for me, it was. Uh, I'm just happy if people like something I made. So, like, as far as like you know, any other future installments or whatever, um, I hope I'll, I'll if if they exist, I hope I'll be able to be a part of them. What are you going to do next? I'm not chill. I uh, like I said. I was like, uh, I, I've been making a movie for the past two and a half years with like just a week or two off in that time. So I'm I'm pretty tired. Uh, so I'm gonna hang out with. I have two young kids, and so I'm real happy to just not do a lot. And then I I ha- have always done a lot of television work. I have several shows that I produce that are on TV right now, and um, I'm excited to do a pilot uh, in the spring. Uh, uh, for our company and then um hopefully in that time be finding whatever i don't have anything lined up so hopefully finding whatever that next right step is uh as a filmmaker getting to make another movie again i've been tasked with asking you a question about the bold type which uh, is is also beloved here at the ringer um how do you figure out what kind of tv projects to associate with and it seems like a vastly different kind of world than the film stuff I feel like you're very well known for the film stuff, not as well known for the TV stuff, but you have a ton of shows that you've directed, executive produced, et cetera. So how do you make decisions in that realm? Yeah, I'm, I've been really lucky in that regard. Uh, just, And I think because TV shows inherently take so much less time than a movie. Like when you choose a movie, it's like at least a year, if not more of your life. I mean, this one's 10 years. So it just, it is a lot of time, whereas a pilot you can do in two months. And so it's less of a commitment. Uh, and so if the show succeeds, you know, and gets on the air, then you get to be a part of it. I'm I'm very lucky with our TV company. I have a partner named Dave Bernad, who's an incredible producer. And the bold type is totally his baby. He met Joanna Coles, uh, who the show's based upon. And when she was at Cosmo, uh, he met her at a dinner. And that first night of meeting her, he said, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to make a sh- TV show based on you. Um, and so the development of that show, it, it actually took longer than just two months. We we did a comedy version uh, for NBC that didn't get picked up. And then we sold it again as a drama to NBC, which didn't get picked up. But Dave's so industrious that he had slipped it to a friend at Freeform uh, as soon as they passed on our, our script. And Freeform thought it would be perfect for them. And uh, yeah, and... Uh, we shot the pilot in Toronto, and uh, yeah, it's been great. And then we also have this new show, Stumptown, uh, that d- just debuted on ABC, um, which they did kind of concurrently while I was uh, doing Zombieland too. Crazy. Ruben, we end every episode of this show by asking filmmakers, what's the last great thing they've seen? Have you seen anything good lately? Yeah, there's a show on Netflix that I really love um, that I'm going to f- space on the name, but maybe you know it. I think it's... People know nothing, or people do nothing. It's a British, uh, a British show, mockumentary style, 
in the in the style of uh, the office or Parks and Rec or the original British office, actually probably the closest thing, where it feels like you're watching a documentary about these young um, pirate radio DJs who are super into garage music in London. And it is one of the funniest things I've seen in so long. It's on Netflix. There's five seasons. I just discovered it, but apparently it's been around for a while. And it's it's truly funny. Uh, I, I'm not all the way through it, but I'm eager to keep watching. Great recommendation. Ruben, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you to Ruben Fleischer. And thank you, of course, to Amanda Dobbins. Please... Come back next week where the big picture will be celebrating its 200th episode with a, a mega mailbag. Me and Amanda, no holds barred. Any questions you have for us about movies, not about our personal lives, are all welcome. See you then.